In this recording, we're going to go through a topic that Rab Chaim addresses in the previous piece, the last piece in Hilchos Shemitah Yovel, and also in the first piece in Hilchos Trumos. And we're going to see another approach that is developed from Rab Chaim, not in Chidush Rabbeinu Chaim Halevi, but this is quoted in his name by his father, the Beis Halevi, in his tshuvas, and by his son, Rab Velvel, the Briskarov, in his Chidushim on the Torah. And it also appears in Chidushe Hagrach, the stencils on so it's crystal clear that Rab Chaim did develop this approach, and as we'll see, it's very different from the way he interprets the whole topic in the two pieces of Chidush Rabbeinu Chaim Halevi where he addresses this issue. So we'll review the question on the Rambam, then we'll review briefly how he interprets it in Chidush Rabbeinu Chaim Halevi, and then we'll go through the other approach that Rab Chaim develops in those other sources. The Rambam is in Hilchus Trumos, Parak Aleph, Halacha Chafvav. Ha-truma bizman hazev, afilu b'makum sheachziku olei bavel. Truma nowadays, even in a place which was captured by Ezra in the second Beis HaMikdash, v'afilu b'yimei Ezra. And even during the times of Ezra himself, meaning throughout the period of the second Beis HaMikdash, e'na min ha-Torah elamidivrehem. Truma was only obligated midra banan, rabbinically, but there was no biblical obligation. Why? Says the Rambam, she'in l'cha truma shel Torah ele be'eretz Yisrael belvad, u'bizman shekol Yisrael sham. The only time there's a do'oraisa obligation of truma is when there's a majority of the Jews living in Israel, based on the pasuk, shenemar kisavot'u, when you come to Israel, which implies bias kulchem, that a majority of the Jews live in Israel, kishahoyu b'yirusha rishona, u'kmoshahin asidin lavzer b'yirusha shlishis, as it was when Yehoshua brought them into Israel for the first conquer, and as it will be in the third conquering in the days of Mashiach. So Yehoshua and Mashiach conquer with the majority of the Jews. But But in the times of Ezra, it was only a minority of Jews who returned. Therefore, they were not obligated in Truma, Mida Oraisa, because they were missing the prerequisite of a majority of the Jews in Israel. The Rambam now adds that he thinks the same applies also to Meiser, that it does not apply nowadays, Mida Oraisa, only rabbinically, same as the framework for Truma. So that's the Rambam's ruling that Truma and Meiser in the period of the second Beis HaMikdash and certainly subsequent to that until Mashiach comes are only rabbinic. And the explanation for that is because there's a requirement to have a majority of the Jews living in Israel in order for it to be a De'oraisa obligation. And since we're missing that, and even Ezra did not have that, so that precludes those mitzvahs becoming De'oraisa nowadays. Now, this is a very difficult Rambam, and there's a few major questions. The Ravid immediately in his comments on the Rambam raises some of the issues. And one of the issues that he raises is from the Gemara in Ksubis and Daf Chavhei. So the way the Kesef Mishnah explains this, there's sort of two questions implicit from the Gemara in Ksubis. Number one is that the Rambam proves this halacha that Truma requires a majority of the Jews from the Pasuk of Kisavo. But the Gemara in Ksubis explicitly says that that Pasuk is talking about the halachas of Chala. Chala requires a majority. So the Rambam seems to be mismatching by applying the Pasuk of Chala to the case of Truma. That's question number one. Question number two is that the Gemara in Ksubis records a debate. One side holds that even if Truma nowadays is only Drabanan, but Chala is Doraisa. 
And the proof for that is because in the 14 years when they were conquering and settling and splitting up Eretz Yisrael, they were obligated in Chala, even though they were not yet obligated in Truma. So that shows us that even at times when Truma is not obligatory, Chala is obligatory Mida Oraisa. So that would be nowadays, it would be obligated Doraisa. The other side argues the exact opposite, that even if Truma is Doraisa nowadays, but Chala is only Drabanan, and that's where they invoke this idea that Chala requires Bias Kulchem, that a majority of the Jews have to be there, which is missing nowadays, so it's only Drabanan, whereas Truma does not require that. So this seems to flat out contradict the Rambam's view that Truma requires a majority and that's why it's Drabanan. The Gemara explicitly says that Truma does not require a majority and that's why it's De Oraisa. So the major approach to explain the Rambam is what the Kesef Mishnah says, which is that since Chala is a form of Truma, those two mitzvahs are very closely connected. So if the halacha is that Chala requires a majority of the Jews, then the Rambam feels that we can learn out from Chala to Truma that it too requires a majority of the Jews. So that's how the Kesef Mishnah explains what the Rambam's doing over here. He's not misreading the Pasuk of Kisavo, obviously, but rather he's deriving from Chala to Truma because they're closely connected. So this is probably the dominant approach, which a number of Achronim follow along with. But the Beis Levi in Chelek Gimel Simen Aleph Osedalid. So he raises a problem with the Kesef Mishnah's idea because it goes against the Gemara. It might make sense logically, but the Gemara explicitly said that even if you hold Truma is a Doraisa, Chala would be Drabanan because you require a majority. So the clear implication is that Truma does not require a majority. So the Beis Levi quotes that Rab Chaim said a different approach to explain this. Now, the version of Rab Chaim that the Beis HaLevi quotes is certainly the earlier one. He even calls him my son, Rab Chaim of Valazhin. So this is before he ever went to Brisk. His father was the Rav of Brisk, and he was a Rosh Hashiva in Valazhin. Then he came up with this approach. And the ideas in Chidush Rabbeinu Chaim HaLevi, which are very different, are his later approach. But we're going to reverse the historical chronology, and we're going to go to the ideas in Chidush Rabbeinu Chaim HaLevi for a minute, and then we'll come back to the version in the Beis HaLevi and see how it's different. Now, in Chidush Rabbeinu Chaim HaLevi, both in the first piece in Ochos Trumos and the last piece in Ochos Shemitah, Rab Chaim quotes this Rambam in Trumos Aleph Chav Vav, and he doesn't raise the issue from the Gemara in Ksubis, and he doesn't quote the Kesef Mishnah, but he does deal with the question that the Rambam is quoting a Pasuk out of place because the Pasuk of Kisavohu is not said with regards to Truma. Now, the way Rab Chaim in Chidush Rabbeinu Chaim HaLevi poses this issue, he's alluding to an even further complication. Because the Kesef Mishnah said that the Rambam is learning out Truma from Chala based on the Gemara in Ksubis on Davchav Hay that says that Chala requires the majority of the Jews. But the problem is that there's actually two psukim. There's one Pasuk that says, Bivo Achem, when you come. That's what it says with regards to Chala. And there's another Pasuk of Kisavohu, which is in the context of Shemitah and Yovel. So the Gemara in Ksubis is talking about the Pasuk of Bivo Achem, which it says with regards to Chala. The Rambam, though, quotes the Pasuk of Kisavohu from Shemitah and Yovel. So that's a big problem with the Kesef Mishnah's approach to this. So some of the Achronim, the Nitziv, and the Malbushe Yom Tov, and the Chazonish, they suggest that there needs to be a Girsa change. We need to edit the Rambam. And in place of Kisavohu, it should say Bivo Achem. 
So that would fit in with the whole idea that he's referencing the Gemara in Ksubis that Bivo Achem teaches us that Chala requires a majority of Jews. But the problem with that approach is that the Rambam in his Truvas in two places says the same thing that Truma nowadays is Drabanan based on the Pasuk of Kisavau. So it's hard to say that in three places there was the wrong Girsa and all of them should be changed to Bivo Achem. Now, Rab Chaim doesn't go through any of this, but he does suggest a totally different approach to interpret the Rambam based on the Pasuk of Kisavau, not Bivoacha. And that is that the Rambam derives Truma from the Halachas of Shemitah and Yovel. And the logic for this is that Rashi in Ksubistav Chafeyam and Aleph says that the mitzvah of Meiser is dependent on the mitzvah of Shemitah because Meiser Ani is given in year three and six. Meiser Sheni is in the other years. So we need to have the Shemitah cycle in order to do the mitzvah of Meiser. So since Meiser is dependent on Shemitah, the way the logic goes is that if Shemitah requires a majority of the Jews, then Meiser also requires a majority of the Jews. And Truma and Meiser are similar, so Truma also requires a majority of the Jews. So Rab Chaim proposes that instead of learning out Truma from Chala, we're actually learning out Truma from Meiser, which is learned out from Shemitah, based on the Rashi and Ksubis and Davchav Aleph. Now, from this technical detail, Rab Chaim now builds a huge conceptual idea, which is that there are two halachas. One is bias kulchem, that a majority of the Jews need to conquer Eretz Yisrael, and the other is kol yoshve'a alea, which is another halacha with regards to Shemitah and Yovel, that there needs to be a majority of the Jews currently living in Eretz Yisrael. And Rab Chaim makes it clear that these are two distinct requirements. One is a historical requirement, that a majority of the Jews need to capture the land. And the second is that at any given Yovel or Shemitah, there needs to be a majority of the Jews currently living on the land. And furthermore, Rab Chaim says that there's a major conceptual difference between these two requirements because the historic requirement, if it's not met, it means that the land is lacking in Kedusha. It was never fully sanctified. So the reason there's no Shemitah and Yovel, if it's captured by a minority of the Jews, is because the land is not sanctified with regard to Shemitah and Yovel. There is, of course, sanctity, but not with regards to those mitzvahs. As opposed to the requirement to currently have a majority of the Jews living there, that doesn't affect the status of the land. That's just a technical requirement in order for the mitzvah to kick in. In the absence of a majority of the Jews currently on the land, then the laws of Yovel and Shemitah don't kick in. So that's Rab Chaim's framework to make sense of this whole topic. Now, what's important to understand here is it never says in the laws of Shemitah and Yovel that we require bias kulchen that a majority of the Jews have to capture the land. It only says that, according to Rab Chaim, in the laws of Truma. So this whole major chiddish, that it's not enough to only have a majority of the Jews currently on the land, but it needed to be captured with the majority of the Jews, otherwise it's missing some level of Kedusha of Eretz Yisrael. According to Rab Chaim, that whole idea is based on his reading of the Rambam, in Hilchos Trumos, that he used the Pasuk of Kisavau to say that there's no Truma if the land wasn't captured by a majority of the Jews. Now, if that Pasuk originally came from Shemitah and Yovel, then says Rab Chaim, certainly it's also going to apply to Shemitah and Yovel. 
Now, the key points of Rab Chaim here are that there are two requirements. One is a historic one to have been captured by a majority of the Jews. One is a current one to have a majority of the Jews living there. Both of these apply to Shemitah and Yovel. And that there's this massive conceptual difference that lacking a majority of the Jews during the capturing period is also going to affect the status of the land that it wasn't sanctified with regards to these mitzvahs. So there's massive chidushim that Rab Chaim's developing based on his reading of this one line in the Rambam. Now, there's also massive problems with Rab Chaim's approach. And in the Or Olam edition of Chidush Rabbeinu Chaim HaLevi, on the piece in Hochul Shemitah in Yovel, they quote from the Zichron Shmuel, and also an article from Rab Moshe Eliezer Rabinowitz in an early journal, the Sharei Tzion. So he does a very nice job laying out clearly some of the big questions on Rab Chaim. And we'll go through three of them. First, how could the Rambam have omitted any mention of this massive principle that a majority of the Jews are needed to capture the land in the laws of Shemitah and Yovel? In other words, according to Rab Chaim, there's this massive omission that never once appears in the Rambam's Hilchah Shemitah Yovel that not only do you currently need a majority of the Jews, but you need a majority to have captured it, and there's no mention of that. And even when the Rambam does write it in Hilchus Trumos, It's like hidden between the lines, but he never once comes out and says it clearly. But a halacha like that, he should have explicitly said, and he should have also said it where it belongs in the laws of Shemitah and Yovel. That's question number one. Question number two, which is related, is how could the Rambam go ahead and make up such a massive new halacha without any source in the Gemara? The Gemara never mentions this halacha, not with regards to Shemitah and Yovel, not with regards to Truma. And the Rambam is suddenly making up this huge new principle of halacha that has no earlier source. And question number three is that the Rambam concludes this halacha by saying, not only is Truma drabanan, but Meiser is also drabanan. Now, according to the Kesef Mishnah, that makes sense because we learn out Truma from Chala and the Rambam is then adding afterwards that we also learn out Meiser from Truma. But according to Rab Chaim, this seems to be totally backwards because we learn out Meiser from Shemitah and Yovel. That's the way Rashi puts it, that Meiser depends on Shemitah and Yovel. And then we learn out Truma from Meiser. So the Rambam has it all backwards. He's saying that Truma is Drabanan and also Meiser, when he should be saying it the other way, that Meiser is Drabanan and also Truma. Now, this last question, why the Rambam includes Meiser as an afterthought, when it's really more intrinsic to what he's doing, so there's a reasonably good answer to this. In the New Chidusha Agrach Alashas, they quote that Rab Chaim's son, Rab Velvel, was asked this, and he said this is the general approach of the Rambam. He only writes things as a halacha when it's explicit in the Gemara. Anything which is not explicit in the Gemara, he identifies as his own addition. That's just the standard approach of the Rambam to identify what's black on white in the Gemara versus what he himself inferred, even though it's crystal clear from the Gemara the way he's saying it. So Reb Velvel said that in this case, even though Meiser is more important to the Rambam's logic than Truma, but the language of the Gemara in Ksubis is Truma. It does not say Meiser. 
So that's why the Rambam records the halacha of truma explicitly because that word is found in the Gemara. And then he adds on meiser as if it's his own innovation because that is not written explicitly in the Gemara, even though on a conceptual level, it is more intrinsic than the truma case. So that question, there's an answer for. But still, Rab Chaim is coming up with some major new ideas in halacha, which don't seem to be properly sourced or explicitly written in the Gemara or the Rambam. So this brings us back to the other earlier version of Rab Chaim, which is quoted by his father in his Chuvas Beis Halevi. And here Rab Chaim has a whole different way to interpret the Rambam. When the Rambam says that you require a majority of the Jews for Truma, that has nothing to do with being derived from the laws of Shemitah and Yovel. It's a totally different concept. And this is based on a debate in the Yerushalmi. The Yerushalmi records a debate between Rabbi Yossi, Rabbi Chanina, and Rabbi Lezer whether the Jews in the second Beis HaMikdash time were obligated in Meiser, Mida Oraisa or not. So Rabbi Yossi, Rabbi Chanina holds they were obligated Mida Oraisa. And the way the Yerushalmi explains this is because he interprets the Pasuk of Avosecha, that Hashem will expand you more than your ancestors as a reference to the time of the second Beis HaMikdash, which means that he considers the conquering of Ezra as a proper conquering. So just like Yehoshua captured the land and Mashiach will capture the land, he considers Ezra to have also captured the land. So this was a proper conquering and capturing, and therefore the Jews became obligated in Meiser, Mida Oraisa. But Rebbe Lezer disagrees, and he holds that they were not obligated Mida Oraisa and Meiser. They had to accept upon themselves to keep the mitzvah of Meiser. And the reason, the way Rab Chaim interprets the Yerushalmi, is that Rebbe Lezer holds that there was no proper capturing of Eretz Yisrael during Ezra's times because they were under control of the Persian king. So Ezra didn't actually go to war. He was given permission by the Persian king to go back and take over Eretz Yisrael, but that's not considered conquering according to Rabbi Lezer's view in the Yerushalmi. So since Ezra never captured the land, he just followed orders of the Persian king and he was subservient politically to him. So there's an opinion in the Yerushalmi that that's not considered a proper capturing. Now that doesn't mean he didn't sanctify the land. He did sanctify the land by occupying it and bringing the Jews back in there. But there was no capturing of the land. So now based on this Yerushalmi, Rab Chaim said something very creative and brilliant. The machlokas in the Gemara in Ksubis and Dafchafehamad Aleph as to whether Truma and Chala are Da'oraisa nowadays, Rab Chaim says they're not disagreeing about nowadays, meaning post the second Beis HaMikdash in the Gemara's times or in our times, but they're actually disagreeing about during the second Beis HaMikdash. In other words, the Rambam reads that Gemara very differently than we would have on the surface. It seems like the debate is about after the times of the Beis HaMikdash, but the Rambam interpreted it as a debate about during the times of the second Beis HaMikdash, and the debate is the same as that in the Yerushalmi. And Rab Chaim uses this to answer two questions on the Gemara and Ksubis. First of all, he says, if the debate is after the destruction of the Beis HaMikdash, so how could it be that the land lost its Kedusha with regards to Truma and not Chala? What does that mean that Israel lost half of its sanctity but not the other half? Either it lost its sanctity or it didn't. You can't split it up. 
The other issue, says Rab Chaim, is the Gemara says that since the Jews were obligated in Chala during the 14 years before they captured and settled the land, so even if Truma nowadays is only Drabanan, Chala is still Doraisa. But what does that have anything to do with anything? Just because they were obligated in Chala way back when in history, before they settled the land, so for all time were obligated in Chala, that seems like a historical fact that doesn't translate into the modern period. Says Rab Chaim, the answer to these two questions is that the Gemara is not discussing the modern period. It's not talking about our times or even the Gemara's times. It's talking about during the period of the second Beis HaMikdash, which as we just said, according to one view in the Yushalmi, was when they occupied the land but hadn't captured it. According to Rabbi Lezer, there was no valid conquering of Eretz Yisrael under Ezra, even though they occupied the land. So that was literally the exact same parallel as to when the Jews first came into Eretz Yisrael before they had captured and settled it. Both situations were exactly parallel. They were living in Israel, but they had not conquered it. So if they were obligated in Chala the first time, then they should also be obligated this time. So Rab Chaim's rereading of the Gemara, as opposed to the standard reading that it's talking about during the Gemara's times itself, whether Truma is Doraisa or Drabanan, and instead Rab Chaim proposes that it's talking about during the second Beis Hamikdash time period, whether Truma was Doraisa or Drabanan, and it's the same debate as that of the Yushalmi, whether there was a halachic status of having captured the land of Israel during the second Beis Hamikdash. So that's going to answer the two questions that we asked before. The first opinion that Truma is a Deoraisa holds like the view in the Yushalmi that Ezra's capturing was a full capturing and that's why they were obligated in Truma. Chala they were not obligated in because that requires a majority of the Jews whereas Truma does not require a majority of the Jews and everyone agrees to that. The second view holds that Truma is Drabanan because it follows the opinion in the Yushalmi that there was no valid capturing in the times of Ezra and in order to be obligated Mida Oraisa in Truma, there needs to be a halachic capturing. So that's why Truma was only Drabanan. But Chala could be Oraisa because it does not require capturing and the proof is that during the first 14 years under Yehoshua, before they had captured and settled the land, they were still obligated in Chala. So that's why Chala is obligated to Oraisa even if there was no capturing. So that explains the connection the Gemara is making between the two time periods. They're not all that different. And it also explains how the Gemara is splitting between Truma and Chala. It's not saying that the land of Israel lost its sanctity for one and not the other. It's saying that during the second Beis HaMikdash period, there were factors that would have made either Truma or Chala, Deoraisa or Drabanan, depending on what you hold. So now this rereading of the Gemara in Ksubis to be in line with the debate in the Yushalmi is going to be the key to understanding what the Rambam means by saying that Truma requires a majority of the Jews. Because the Rambam holds like the view in the Yushalmi that Ezra's coming to Israel was not a halachic capturing. And that's necessary for Truma. So he rules like the opinion in the Gemara and Ksubis that Truma during the second Beis HaMikdash was only Drabanan. And the reason it did not have the status of capturing was because Ezra was missing a majority of the Jews. So when the Rambam 
Rambam says that Truma requires a majority of the Jews, he means otherwise it's missing the whole status of being captured land based on those views in the Gemara. So this explains very nicely where the Rambam's source for this halacha with regards to Truma is. It's not from Chala, like the Kesef Mishnah. It's not from Shemitah and Yovel, like Rab Chaim's later version. In this approach, the Rambam derived it from the Gemara that says that the capturing of Ezra was not valid in order to obligate them in Truma. And the reason is because they didn't have a majority. So says the Rambam, certainly nowadays, post the destruction of the second base on Mikdash, since they were never obligated in Truma, Mida, Orisa during Ezra's times, then certainly nowadays it's still only a drabana. So this explains very nicely where the Rambam got it from. And it also answers one of the big problems with the Rambam because he rules like the opinion in the Gemara that Kedusha Shnia Kitshel Ashaitav Kitshel Asid Lavo. Ezra's sanctification was eternal. There's a debate in the Gemara about that. One view holds that after the destruction of the second Beis HaMikdash, that Kedusha ended. But the Rambam rules like the other view that it was eternal. So why should Truma nowadays not be Deoraisa? The answer, according to Rab Chaim, is that this Rambam has nothing to do with Kedusha Shnia, Kitshala Shaita, or Kitshala Asid Lavo, whether the second sanctification was eternal. Because according to the Rambam's interpretation of the debating Subos, everyone could hold that the second sanctification was eternal. The question is whether they were even obligated Mida Oraisa in Truma and Meiser during the period of the second base Hamikdash, not whether that Kedusha ended or not. So that's why the Rambam, even though he holds that Ezra sanctified the land for all time, but that was never with regards to Truma and Meiser because he didn't have the halachic status of having captured the land, which is a prerequisite for Truma. Now, it's important to point out, when the Rambam says that Truma requires a majority and Chala requires a majority, these actually mean conceptually two different things, according to this approach in Rab Chaim. Truma requires a majority because otherwise the land doesn't have the halachic status of having been conquered. And that's a prerequisite for Truma and Meiser. But Chala, as the Gemara Nksuba says, does not require having been conquered. Because even in the first 14 years, the Jews were obligated in Chala. So when the Rambam says that Chala requires a majority, that's a technicality that the mitzvah of Chala doesn't become obligated unless when they first came in, they had a majority of the Jews. So even though the terms sound similar, but on a conceptual level, they have a subtle difference. The prerequisite for Chala is that a majority of the Jews have to come into the land to begin with, but they don't ever have to capture it. The prerequisite for Truma is that they must capture the land. And in order to do that, they require a majority. So on the surface, it might look the same, but they're leading to two different outcomes. Chala needs a majority to be there when they occupy it, whereas Truma requires a conquering, which needs a majority. So this is Rab Chaim's earlier approach to explain this Rambam. And before we continue with this approach of Rab Chaim, I want to contrast Rab Chaim's earlier version with the version that we have in Chidush Rabbeinu Chaim HaLevi because there's obviously some key differences. On a technical level, in Chidush Rabbeinu Chaim HaLevi, he's comparing Truma to the mitzvah of Shemitah and Yovel. So he's involving Shemitah and Yovel in this whole equation with the outcome that Shemitah and Yovel, like Chala and Truma, 
also have a necessary prerequisite that a majority of the Jews were there when they initially captured it. So that's a big chiddush, as we said. On the other hand, in the earlier version, he doesn't include Shemitah and Yovel at all. It's an internal equation between Truma and Chala, on some level similar to the Kesef Mishnah. So he doesn't include Shemitah and Yovel at all in the equation, which means that Truma and Chala require a majority of the Jews when they initially take over Israel, but Shemitah and Yovel do not. They have only one prerequisite, which is a different one, that a majority of the Jews currently be living in Israel during that Shemitah or Yovel year. So that's a key difference between these two views. Now, on a conceptual level, there are also some key differences. In the piece in Chidush Rabbeinu Chaim HaLevi, he stresses that the historical requirement of having a majority of the Jews is going to affect the very status of the land itself, as opposed to the current requirement to have a majority of the Jews, which is a technicality for the mitzvah to kick in, but it doesn't affect the status of the land. In the earlier version, he also has a similar distinction, but it's more subtle. Within the requirement to have a majority of the Jews when they initially come to Israel, he distinguishes between Truma and Chala. That for Truma, it's a requirement in order to have a capturing of the land. And in the absence of that, the land is not sanctified with regards to the mitzvah of Truma. Whereas with Chala, it's a technicality, but it doesn't affect the status of the land. That's why Chala is obligated even before they capture it, so long as there's a majority of the Jews occupying the land. So there's a lot of similarities between that distinction and the one he eventually makes in Chidush Rabbeinu Chaim HaLevi. But there's obviously a few differences. One major one being that in the earlier version, he's distinguishing between Truma and Chala, whereas in Chidush Rabbeinu Chaim HaLevi, he's distinguishing between Truma and Shemitah and Yovel. So there's probably more that could be compared and contrasted between these two versions, but we'll leave it at that. And we'll move on to some other places that Rab Chaim applies some of the ideas from his earlier version. Now, the earlier version seems to have been displaced by his later ideas in Chidush Rabbeinu Chaim HaLevi. And this is not unusual. Very often when we have notes from Rab Chaim of shiurim he gave or things he said when he was younger. So you can see how the ideas developed and matured by the time he wrote them down later in in his life in Chidush Rabbeinu Chaim HaLevi, how they're more sharply and more fully developed there. And this is a good reminder for all of us that these pieces from Rab Chaim, with all their brilliance and creativity and sharpness, didn't fall from heaven, but they were the hard work of someone named Rab Chaim, who lived and had responsibilities and was busy, but he spent his time learning and thinking about Torah all the time, and eventually these ideas came and he developed them. So seeing the progression of how over his lifetime he sharpened and more fully developed the ideas helps inspire us that we need to keep at it and keep developing ideas that we have over a lifetime. And even more than that, it's not just that each individual idea was developed more fully, but you can also trace very often how his methodology was perfected. The earlier, younger pieces very often reflect more of the traditional way of learning at that time, throwing around more sources, and it's a little more convoluted. While the older he gets, the more sharp his formulations get and the more conceptual. So you can see how throughout his lifetime, he's really articulating how to approach a Gemara, how to analyze a concept in Halacha, and that's the gift that he leaves behind for us. So this topic also seems to be an example of this broader trend because the ideas that are quoted in the Chuvis Beis Halevi do have a different feel to them than the way Rab Chaim articulates them in Chidush Rabbeinu Chaim Halevi. So one might assume that he replaced his earlier ideas 
with a more conceptual approach later on. But on the other hand, that doesn't seem to be the case. This seems to be something that he thought a lot about and developed further ideas in, but he doesn't seem to have abandoned the earlier ideas. So we'll look at two other places where Rab Chaim is quoted as using a version of his earlier ideas to explain other areas of halacha. In the Chidusha Agrach Alashas stencils on Gitin Memzayin, Rab Chaim asks a very good question. The Gemara says that Surya, the Syria region, which was captured by David after they were already living in Eretz Yisrael, so it had the status of Kibush Yachid, it was captured by an individual, not by the whole nation of the Jewish people. So there's a debate in the Gemara whether that's considered a valid capturing. So the Gemara says that the issue of whether a non-Jew is able to purchase land in Surya and halachically own it is going to depend on whether kibush yachid shmei kibush or not, whether David's capturing had a halachic status of Eretz Yisrael. So Rab Chaim asks a very good historical question, which is that David's capturing was even before the first base Hamikdash. So it was part of the whole Kiddusha Rishona, Yehoshua's era. But then the Beis HaMikdash was destroyed, the land lost its Kedusha, and then it was re-sanctified hundreds of years later by Ezra. But at that time, he didn't capture Surya. So regardless of whether you hold Kibush Yachich Me Kibush or not, it's not included in the second sanctification. So for all practical purposes, after Ezra's times, Surya is not considered part of Eretz Yisrael. So why does the Gemara invoke an earlier debate about the status of David's capturing when it's irrelevant later on in history? So Rab Chaim answered, based on the ideas he developed in the Rambam, that the Rambam holds like the view in the Yerushalmi that Ezra occupied the land, but he never conquered it. So that's going to answer this question. But Rab Chaim adds a very brilliant conceptual point. And he says, it's not that historically it happened to be a coincidence that Yehoshua conquered the land and Ezra didn't conquer it, he only occupied it. He says this whole issue has nothing to do with history. It's a purely halachic concept. And what that means is that the first time Eretz Yisrael is sanctified, it has to be through conquering it. Meaning if Yoshua had just occupied the land and he hadn't conquered it, that would not have been enough to sanctify Eretz Yisrael. Only after it was already conquered, then later on in history, if the Jews occupy it without conquering it, that's enough to re-sanctify the land. In other words, occupying is a lower level than conquering. So occupying can only work on Eretz Yisrael land, which has previously already been conquered and fully sanctified. So even if it loses that sanctity, if the Jews merely occupy it, it gets back at least some of the sanctity. But if the Jews had occupied it first without having conquered it to begin with, and only subsequently later on in history conquered it, then that original occupation would not have been enough to sanctify the land. Now this does contradict the version in Beis HaLevi because there he says that the first 14 years before they conquered the land, it still had the halachic status of being occupied without being conquered. So on this detail as to whether the occupation before conquering would do anything, there's a difference between these two pieces. But says Rab Chaim, if that's the case, that the halacha requires a conquering and then occupying, so that explains what the Gemara says about Surya. If the first conquering of David was a full conquering, then that means the Surya land only needs to be occupied, and then a non-Jew couldn't own land there. But if the first conquering was not considered a full conquering, then it still needs to be conquered, and that 
that can't be done by Ezra because he did not do a conquering. He only did an occupying. So that's why the Gemara says that the issue of Kibush Yachid, whether David's was a full conquering, is still going to determine whether occupying Surya is enough or not and whether a non-Jew can own land there. So that's how Reb Chaim uses these ideas to explain that Gemara. And what he's adding in this case is the idea that the occupying and the conquering are not just historical coincidences when they happen, but all land of Eretz Yisrael needs a conquering to begin with. Once it had that, so then it could have the lower level of occupying later on in history and it will still become sanctified. Now, Rab Chaim in this piece points out that there's a Rambam which almost explicitly says the whole idea Rab Chaim's trying to develop. And that's in Hilchus Beis Abachira, Perek Vav Halacha Tes Zayin, the last Halacha. The Rambam is here developing a Chiddush that he says in Halacha Yud Dalid. The Rambam holds that even though we hold that Kedusha Rishona, the first con- of Yehoshua was only a temporary sanctification, but when the first Beis Hamikdash was destroyed, that sanctity ended. But the Rambam says the exception to that is the area of the Beis Hamikdash and Yerushalayim, which were sanctified by Shlomo, and those are eternal sanctities. Now the Ravid disagrees with him, and he believes that after the destruction of the Beis Hamikdash, it lost its sanctity. So that's a big debate about going up to the Har Habayis nowadays. But the Rambam believes that there's an exception to this whole issue that the first sanctity ended, and that is that the place of the Beis HaMikdash could never lose its sanctity. So in order to explain his position, the Rambam writes an unbelievable passage. Why do I say that the Beis HaMikdash and Yerushalayim could never lose their sanctity, whereas the rest of Eretz Yisrael with regards to Shemitah and Meiser does lose its Kedusha? Says the Rambam, Because the sanctity of the Beis HaMikdash and Yerushalayim comes from the Shechina, from Hashem's presence. Shechina eina betela, and the Shechina can never be canceled. Hashem says, I'm going to make the Beis HaMikdash desolate. And the Rambam quotes, Even though they're desolate, they're still sanctified. Now, says the Rambam, with regards to Shemitah and Meiser, the land did lose its sanctity. And this is for our purposes, the key formulation. Because it was captured by the Jewish people. Once the land was taken away from them, so the capturing was reversed, they now lost the land, but al-Hakibush, that conquering was cancelled, niftura min ha-Torah, and now it was exempt mida oraisa from Meiser and Shemitah, shaharei eina min Eretz Yisrael, because it's not considered Eretz Yisrael. Now, when Ezra came up and sanctified the land, he did not do it with kibush, with conquering. Rather, they took control of the land. They occupied it. So any part of the land which was sanctified by Ezra in the second conquering is still sanctified for all time. Even though the land was taken from us, that land that Ezra sanctified continues to be obligated in Shemitah and Meiser Mida Oraisa. So here the Rambam makes an explicit distinction between Kibush conquering versus Chazaka taking control. 
He says that Yehoshua conquered the land, but Ezra took control of the land. Now the Kesef Mishnah asks on the Rambam's logic, how does this make any sense? First of all, why should conquering be worse than Chazaka, that if they conquered it, that can be reversed, but merely taking control and occupying it is eternal? It seems like conquering should be more powerful. And second, the Kesef Mishnah asks, even when Yehoshua conquered it, but he also occupied it. He did both. He did kibush with Chazaka. He conquered it, but of course he also occupied it. So if you're telling me that Chazaka can never be reversed, why was Yehoshua's Chazaka able to be reversed? Even if his conquering was canceled, but the Chazaka should never have been canceled. So the way Rab Chaim explains what the Rambam's trying to say is that it's precisely because Ezra did a lower level sanctification, he never conquered the land, he only occupied it, that's why it could never be reversed. Again, using the ideas that Rab Chaim's developed in the Rambam, so the logic now becomes clear. The Rambam holds that Ezra never captured it because they were still under the control of the Persian Empire. So there was no real conquering the way Yehoshua conquered the land from other nations. Now, as we said, Yehoshua's sanctification was much more powerful because he actually captured the land. Ezra's was a lower level, which only worked because it was restoring the Kedusha that Yehoshua had already put in the land. So that's exactly why Yehoshua's capturing of the land could be reversed, but Ezra's process of occupying it never could be. Because the whole essence of Yehoshua's sanctification was that he took the land from other nations and he made it the Jewish peoples. So once the Beis Hamikdash was destroyed and they lost that control over the land, that reversed what Yehoshua had done and the land lost its Kedusha. As opposed to Ezra, who never took it from anyone. He occupied it, but under the control of the Persian Empire. So then, even when the Jews were exiled, but nothing really changed because they were always under the control of the non-Jewish Empire. So the destruction wasn't enough to reverse the sanctification of Ezra. He had made the land holy through occupying it, so that could never be reversed even once the Jews were exiled. It's precisely because Ezra's sanctification was a lower level than Yehoshua's that it was eternal because going into exile and losing control of the land is not going to change the actual status of the land the way it changed it from Yehoshua's conquering of the land. So this is an approach building on Rab Chaim's basic idea. There's a lot of conceptual gems in it. The idea that Yehoshua captured it while Ezra occupied it and that he didn't have the halachic status of having captured it explains a number of things. And it also helps to really understand why Yehoshua's was temporary, whereas Ezra's was eternal. And it's precisely because Ezra occupied it even under the control of the non-Jews. And it also explains the relationship between Ezra's occupation compared to Yehoshua's conquering that Ezra was building on Yehoshua's initial sanctification of the land. Now, before we move on from this approach of Rab Chaim, there's one last point I'd like to raise, and that is Rab Aaron Cutler in Mishnah's Rab Aaron on Zroim Simen Yudches Os Aleph has an interesting comment he makes about the Rab Chaim version in the Beis Alevi, and he says that according to Rab Chaim, the kibush v'chiluk, the process of capturing and settling the land, does not 
add Kedusha to the land. This is how he understands what Rab Chaim is trying to say. That the sanctity of the land comes just because the Jews move into the land. And then the Kibush Vechiluk is a technical obligation in order to be obligated in the mitzvah of Truma. So that's why Ezra, who sanctified the land without capturing it, was able to sanctify Eretz Yisrael, even though he never captured it, because the capturing it is a technical requirement for the mitzvah of Truma, but it does not add Kedusha to the land. And Rab Aaron disagrees with this, and that's why he says that there's a two-stepped process of making the land sanctified. The first step is when they first come into Eretz Yisrael, so that sanctifies the land enough that they're obligated in challah and some mitzvahs. And then there's another group of mitzvahs that require even more sanctification, like truma, so for that they need to capture the land and add even more sanctification. So this is the way Rab Aaron presents Rab Chaim's idea. I'm not sure that that's the correct formulation, because the way we've been saying it, one could just as easily portray it that Rab Chaim saying the same thing as Rab Aaron, that there's two types of sanctification. One comes from occupying the land, and one comes from conquering the land, and the conquering one might build on the occupying it. So it's not clear to me that Rab Chaim does mean what Rab Aaron says he means, but Rab Aaron's approach is interesting in and of itself that the whole sanctity comes only from occupying it, and the conquering is a technical requirement in the mitzvah of Truma. So those are some of the ideas surrounding these two approaches of Rab Chaim and the very interesting approach that he develops beginning in his father's Chuvas Beis Halevi and then continuing in Chidusha Agrach Alashas. Now we've been discussing this so far on a totally theoretical level, but this does have major ramifications for Halacha because it involves the whole issue of whether Shemitah nowadays is a Drabanan or a Doraisa, which is one of the most important practical Halacha questions facing the state of Israel. And that's what the tshuva of the Beis Halevi is initially on. So Rab Chaim's ideas in this regard have major halachic ramifications. The Kesef Mishnah seems to say that according to the Rambam, only Truma and Chala have technical reasons why they're not Deoraisa nowadays. But the land of Israel is still totally sanctified from Ezra's times. So Shemitah could be a Deoraisa. It might depend on whether you need a majority of the Jews living there or not. But Rab Chaim's ideas as he develops them complicates the whole story from the way the Kesef Mishnah sees it. And he's going to push us in the direction that there is something missing in the very status and the sanctity of Eretz Yisrael since the times of Ezra and on that maybe makes it that there is no Shemitah de Oraisa nowadays even with the majority of the Jews. Either because there wasn't a majority of the Jews who captured the land with Ezra and one of the requirements for Shemitah is Bias Kulchem. There has to be a majority when they initially go into Eretz Yisrael. Or the other formulation is that Ezra never actually captured the land. So it was missing some of the sanctity that comes from capturing the land. So these ideas of Rab Chaim are very important on a practical level too. If anyone wants to see a nice presentation of these ideas, in addition to the earlier sources I've quoted, in Pnine Rabbeinu Hagriz from Rab Moshe Mordechai Schulzinger on page Kuf Pei Vav, 
he has a nice presentation of some of the ideas from Rav Chaim that we just went through. Now we'll end with one drusha, an interpretation of psukim that Rav Chaim said based on this same approach. And that's the psukim in Zechariah, which we read for the Haftorah of Shabbos Chanukah and Baha'aloscha. So this appears in the Chidushe Hagriz on the Torah, the stencils at the end where he's discussing Zechariah. And also Rab Chaim's grandson, Rav Yosef Dov Soloveitchik, quoted this idea in a number of places. In Nefesh HaRav, page 76, Rav Soloveitchik quotes the same tradition that the Grizz has. And in Rav Soloveitchik's Sefer, Al Hatshuva, beginning on page 310, he discusses a similar idea, but he does not quote Rab Chaim. And also in his Shirun Lezech Abamari in volume 1, beginning on page 190, he revisits these ideas. So these were obviously ideas that were very much on the minds of the figures of Brisk, but we're just going to look at how Rab Chaim interpreted the Psukim in Zechariah. The Navi Zechariah at the beginning of chapter 4 has a strange conversation with an angel who's showing him a nevuah. The angel shows him a vision of the Beis HaMikdash. Now this would be the second Beis HaMikdash. And Zechariah says to the angel, I don't understand. And the angel says to him, you do understand. So it's unclear what their conversation is about and what this back and forth means. The second problem is that part of Zechariah's prophecy is that he sees a king and a Kohen Gadol being anointed with the anointing oil. Now, there was no king during the second Beis HaMikdash, and there also was no anointing oil. That was only in the first Beis HaMikdash. So how is Zechariah seeing this vision for the second Beis HaMikdash of things that were not there? And finally, Zechariah uses the phrase, lo b'chayel v'lo b'koach, not with armies and not with strength, but Hashem says, through my spirit, this will be done. So Rab Chaim is going to explain what he means by that. So the basic idea that Rab Chaim uses is the approach he's been developing, that there was a major difference between Yehoshua's conquering versus Ezra's occupying the land. But he never halachically conquered the land because he was subservient to the Persian kings. He never took the land from them. So that was not considered halachically conquering. But that's ironically why Ezra's sanctification is eternal, because nothing can shake it or reverse the situation that he had in his time, as opposed to Yehoshua's, which was temporary, because once the Jews lost the land, then the sanctification was reversed. So based on those ideas that we've seen from Rav Chaim in other places, he now explains the psukim in Zechariah. Zechariah saw the vision of the second Beis HaMikdash, but he saw that there was no conquering. So that's why he asked the angel, how can this be sanctified when it's missing the conquering of Eretz Yisrael? So the angel said to him, no, you do understand, meaning this is a new form of sanctifying Eretz Yisrael without conquering it only by occupying it. So it was this very vision to Zechariah which created the new halachic category of occupying Eretz Yisrael as opposed to conquering it. In other words, what Ezra did by occupying and not conquering it only worked halachically because Zechariah's nevuah had given that prophecy to the world. So that's what Zechariah didn't understand because before him it didn't exist. And the angel said to him, you're the one introducing the concept of occupying versus conquering. And that's why Ezra is going to be able to sanctify the land without conquering it. 
Then the angel showed him the anointing oil of the king. So that never happened during the second Beis HaMikdash. That only happened in the third Beis HaMikdash. So now Zechariah understood that the second Beis HaMikdash sanctification is going to go on forever, including in the times of Mashiach. In other words, Mashiach does not have to re-sanctify the whole land. There's some things he might need to sanctify anew, but mostly it's the same sanctification of Ezra that Mashiach built. On. So because Zechariah was the one that was making the second sanctification eternal, so now he understood that the anointing of the king is part of that sanctification because even though it didn't happen in the second Beis HaMikdash, it did happen in the third Beis HaMikdash and the sanctity of the third Beis HaMikdash is on some level a continuation of the second Beis HaMikdash. So Zechariah's prophecy was not only for the second Beis HaMikdash, it was eternal, including the third Beis HaMikdash too. And that's exactly what Hashem meant to tell him, lo lo it's not going to be with armies or might that the second sanctification is going to happen. It's going to be Baruchi through the spirit of Hashem that he is going to bring the Jews to live in Israel and that's going to sanctify the land. But there's not going to be a dramatic conquering of the land. And that's the whole theme of Zechariah's prophecy here that the second Beis HaMikdash won't be conquered. It will be occupied and controlled. Beruchi. The sanctification will come through the spirit of Hashem. So that was Rab Chaim's interpretation based on the halachic concepts that we've seen from him. Now in the Chidush HaGriz Torah, it does record that Rab Chaim's son, Rab Velvel, asked him a question on his interpretation because as we saw from the Rambam, the Beis HaMikdash was an exception to the rule that it lost its Kedusha once they were exiled. So the vision Zechariah saw had to do with the Beis HaMikdash and Rab Chaim is explaining it in line with the halachic concept that the sanctification was lost after the destruction. So that doesn't seem to apply to the Beis HaMikdash itself, which was eternally sanctified from Shlomo's times and onwards. So that was Rab Velvel's question on this interpretation. Now in the version of this in Nefesh Harav from Rav Soloveitchik, so he subtly answers Rab Velvel's question. And I don't know if this is Rav Soloveitchik's edition or he had a slightly different version of the Rab Chaim tradition. But the way he quotes it, there's a subtle difference which explains Rab Velvel's problem. And that is he understands lo b'chayel v'lobekoach, not with armies and not with might, ki im beruchi, but with my spirit, is a reference to the Beis HaMikdash. So it's not just the vague halacha that they don't need to conquer it. They can occupy it. It actually refers to the Beis HaMikdash itself. And what the Navi is saying is the way Ezra was able to sanctify Eretz Yisrael without conquering it was by accessing the pre-existing Kedusha of the Beis HaMikdash, which was never canceled as the Rambam said. So it's exactly this point of the Rambam that the Navi is trying to make, that Ezra was only able to sanctify the land without conquering it because the Beis HaMikdash continued to be sanctified that whole time, even after they were exiled. Had they totally lost Kedusha, then Ezra would have required another conquering. But since there was lingering Kedusha in the Beis HaMikdash, so they tapped into that, and then only by moving in and occupying Eretz Yisrael, they were able to sanctify it. 
So this is a very lovely addition to this whole idea of Rab Chaim that the Ruchi Hashem is saying is giving us the mechanics of how Ezra's sanctification happened. Because there was the lingering sanctity of the Beis HaMikdash, it's really a beautiful idea that the whole land was desolate and lost its Kedusha, but the Beis HaMikdash was sitting there even though it was desolate, it was still sanctified because Hashem's Shechina never goes anywhere. And eventually when the Jews did come back, they were able to expand that sanctity, even though they never captured the land, but just by moving and dwelling in Eretz Yisrael, they were able to spread the sanctity of the Beis HaMikdash throughout the rest of the land. So that was exactly what Zechariah saw, that Beruchi, through the Beis HaMikdash, the sanctity would come, and that was what Ezra did, and that's why that sanctity never got reversed. So this is a very beautiful idea, and it explains more fully the idea Rab Chaim said, that once they conquered it, they didn't need another conquering, they only needed an occupying, now we're refining that formulation that it wasn't just simply that occupying builds on conquering. It's more profound than that. The conquering and the building of the Beis HaMikdash entrenched that area of Eretz Yisrael with eternal sanctity and that they were able to build on when they came back and occupied it in the times of Ezra.